Yes, good to see you guys. All right, you guys, finish this sentence. Finish this sentence. If God exists, actually think about it. Don't just do one of those things where maybe I'm talking and everybody's like, okay. Actually think about it for a moment and consider for your life, for your city, for your world, if God exists, then what? If God exists, then my mom used to say, he's got a lot of explaining to do. Why did you create cockroaches? My mom used to say that all the time. If God exists, then all he or she is is some jerk kid with a magnifying glass. Or if the God of the Bible really exists, then reality is not as we thought. Um, Immanuel Kant, the immense figurehead of philosophy in the 1700s, and a man really hell-bent on demolishing proof of or proof for God, when even he was approached with this very question, if God exists, when he was approached, he said, would have no doubt if a God, like the Bible describes, actually existed. This is what he would say. If he actually existed, then this is where all norm, hope, truth, and essentially he'd, he'd say, all the combinations of interest of human reason find their rest. All combinations of interest and human reason find their rest. Kant made it very clear that if this God existed, there would be practical action. That reality would be manifested in man's action. A man by the name of Hans, a Swiss Catholic priest and theologian, agrees with him. And in like his 2,000-page work called, titled uh, On Being a Christian, he says it so beautifully. See, if this God existed, whether you believe in him or not, whether you believe in him or not, if this God existed, he says, then God would be the primal reason of all reality. If this God actually existed, the primal support of all reality, God would be the being itself of all reality. For God would be the first grounds of my life, the ultimate meaning also of my life. For then God would also be in comprehensive hope of my life. I can't get past. Then God would be the primal reason of all reality. He is the primal reason of all reality. Before we even think about this, he's the primal reason of all reality before we even get into his, his attributes. Before we talk about his grace or his enduring love or his long suffering or God is rich in mercy or his outstretched, you know, saving arms. These primal reasons are true simply just because of the weightiness and the heaviness of just his very existence. See, my question wasn't if a super loving God exists. My question wasn't if a God of grace existed. But again, these primal reasons are true just simply because of the weight and the heaviness of his very existence. And friends, this is known as the glory of God. The glory of God. See, if any one of us were to open the Bible, and maybe some of you have in front of you, and hunt through its pages, you'd find glory to appear over 275 times. It appears over 275 times, 50 times alone, just in the Psalms. But please don't be fooled by its frequency that somehow it's simply understood or digestible. It's as one philosopher and theologian says, it's easily one of the hardest Christian terms to define. 
which makes it super fun for me. Because this word glory is this Frankenstein of sorts, due to it being like the sewing together of splendor and utter beauty, magnificence, and radiance, and rapture, and weight, uh, transcendence, and holiness, and true honor, and excellence, and majesty, and perfection. See, the mass side of this big cliff, of a multiple side cliff, understanding with this glory, it's this sort of theological shorthand to capture and communicate all that he is. The word glory is to capture and communicate all that he is. See, if anyone is here, if anyone here is interested or curious about God, which could be a good bet is all of us, unless you were dragged here, and then I, I hope your experience isn't that bad. But if you're curious about God, if you're curious if God exists, you must start with the understanding of his glory, with the understanding of all that he is, all that he is, the whole weightiness, transcendence, holiness thing. See, no one here ever, and no one ever will, be worthy enough in, those, in that sense to bear those inscriptions. See, that glory, this glory we're talking about, is reserved for God alone. No one knew this more than Adam and Eve, two names that probably all of us here obviously know. So we see in the very first book of the Bible called Genesis, which means beginnings, and it was in the beginning that this glory we were talking about grew wildly in this garden, the same garden where Adam and Eve lived, resided. See, sin was absent, thus God was present. I mean, if you think about it, if you know the story, if you've read this story, it says that Adam and Eve walked with God. In the cool of the day in the garden, like much like today has been, they walked with God. They talked with God as a face-to-face. God was there in visible manifestation of himself. They communed with God. They saw God, and they saw God in his glory. And they glorified God meaning they acknowledged him to be who he was and dwelled in the light of that. And this was to what? This was to continue for infinity and beyond, right? This was to continue forever. Again, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, we all know what happens, don't we? What happens? You can talk in church. What happened? Sean, what happened? They fell. Why? They rejected God. They rejected God. They rejected him. Has anybody here been rejected before? <laughs> Fig immediately. He knows. No, that was a joke. Jeez. I don't know what it's like to be rejected. <laughs> Joking. Where's my wife? She's not even in here. That's, just, I'm, that's how rejected I am. I don't even know where she's at. <laughs> Joking. But again, imagine this. Oh, there she is. Lord, have mercy. But imagine this type of rejection times like 40 billion. They reject the walks and the cool of the day. Adam and Eve reject the communion and and the conversing. Adam and Eve reject the primal reason of all reality and all of his glory. They reject the splendor. They reject the utter beauty. They reject the magnificence and the radiance. See, for those here now who are now followers of Christ and lovers of God, do you remember the early reasons 
of why you rejected God? I remember when I wasn't a Christian, I rejected God for... For those here tonight who, who don't believe in God, for those reasons that you still reject, what is keeping you there? See, if we were to ask Adam and Eve about their rejection to God, what do you think their answer would be? If we could sit down with them and have a cold brew, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Were they merely fooled? Well, Satan's tempting words tell us, and allow me to read them to you. They actually tell us. I'll read them to you. And this is Satan talking. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And listen to this. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you will be like God. To eat of this very ordinary tree in this very extraordinary garden means we now decide what is good. Not God. To eat of this very ordinary tree in this very extraordinary garden means we now decide what is wrong for our lives, not God. See, hearing this and knowing and reading the Genesis verses, would it be fair to say... That one of mankind's staple sins isn't being anti-God, but that man is anti-God's other than him or herself. See, Satan igniting the very first sin on earth is for man to, you know, be your own Lord. Satan is encouraging, encouraging man, be your own master. Satan is telling man, you now decide what's right. You now decide what's wrong. Decide for yourself. Be, be like God. Be your own God. Be God. Be God. The essence of his temptation was for independent glory. Basically, I don't need some God telling me who I can have sex with. I don't need some God telling me when I can have sex I don't need some God telling me who I should date, who I should marry, what I should do with my money, or where or how I should spend my time. See, like Adam and Eve, we've all rejected the glory of God. And now I, or now we, determine our fate, our future, our form, our fame, our finances, our function, and our fun. We've all rejected God, or still reject God. The Bible very sharply would tell us, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. See, why did Satan fall from heaven? He wanted to be God. Why did the Israelites reject God after their exodus? They wanted a different God. The rejection of God at the tabernacle in the Old Testament of the Bible, the rejection of God at the temple, the rejection of God with the prophets. And this happens over And over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over in the long narrative of Scripture. All the way to the small amount of verses that we have today in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. If you have the Bible open. Acts chapter 12, verse 20 says what? Now Herod was angry. See, now Herod's family and bloodline... To be honest, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like an episode of Game of Thrones. 
I mean, it's a rat's nest of debauchery, of praise seekers, of filth and murder. Herod's grandfather, that being Herod the Great, with him, you guys don't need to be any kind of Bible scholar to, to really know about some of his tales. Probably a lot of you have heard when he was around, he was around the, during the time of Christ. If you remember when the wise men showed up and they're like, where's this Messiah Jesus? What did he do? He freaked out, right? Did he squeeze a stress ball and pop a pill? No, no. He puts out a decree that all, all male children should be slaughtered. If you've had a son born from this time to this time, he will be slaughtered. Why would he do that? Glory. He wants glory. He then proceeds to get married, this Herod the Great, somewhere around 10 times, and then has like a TLC dugger load of children. And then another one of the Herod killed, one another one that Herod kids kills John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, but whatever. Somewhere along the way, Herod Agrippa I, grandson to Herod the Great, was born. That's the Herod we have here today in chapter 12. He's a real winner. Now look at verse 20 again. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. So Blastus is like his advisor. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. Oration to them. Now, this is... uh, this is quite epic. This is pretty epic. Uh, get this, outside tried and true historical sources explain the scene in greater detail than the Bible does, than what we have here. This is what Herod does. Herod has a robe made of silver. <laughs> Already I'm digging it. He has a robe made of silver. So what happens when you wear a robe made of silver and you walk out in this bathrobe, fifth element style, and you walk out in the early morning where the sun is shining upon you. What happens? Saturday night fever, giant disco ball deity. He's just beaming, beaming, which is exactly what Herod wanted. The whole place was so dazzled by this amazing robe, so dazzled, like he was girl on fire. They're all freaking out. They were so amazed, they claimed him as God. Look at verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. The voice of God and not of man. The voice of God and not of man. Now again, this is certainly not unusual for this time where emperors died, they were honored as gods. But what makes Herod different is he wants that honor now. Now I will not wait till my death to be honored as a god. Herod is demanding glory now. Herod is eating up, I mean, he's eating it up like the fruit of the tree, like Adam and Eve did, and deciding for himself that he will be like God, that he will be God. Herod, like Adam and Eve, get this, this is, is, he's uncentering God. Herod is de-godding God. Herod is a thief of what was rightfully God's. That means the alms and the adoration of the people. I mean, Herod consumes it like a rat. He consumed it rather than deflected it. Um, 
I not too long ago uh, was reading Jim Henson's biography, um, and I am unashamed to proclaim publicly my love for Muppets. And, you know, Sesame Street was my drug of choice as a kid. So I, I just grew up with all things Henson's and Fraggle Rock and Dark Crystal. So Jim Henson has had a huge, huge impact on me creatively. And so I thoroughly enjoyed reading his biography um, and found it fascinating how Henson explained that he himself, as the Muppets were growing in popularity, as Sesame Street was growing in popularity, as all this was happening, he was understanding and realizing in himself and taking back that his creation, Henson's creation was looked upon and received the limelight. It was odd to him. Henson was literally the puppet master, yet the puppets were the ones that were adored, famed, praised, asked to come speak, asked to come do things. See, children knew Kermit's name, but nobody knew Jim. Children knew Oscar and Elmo and Fozzie and Gonzo, but nobody mentioned the name Jim. And Henson even admitted in his biography being jealous, frustrated, and bothered with his own creation and the glory that his puppets received. Now, I love Jim Henson, but Jim here sounds, there's some issues there. My puppets! I <laughs> can But the point is his creation was getting undeserved credit that belongs to the creator. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, wouldn't this lead us to a crucial question? And I want us to hear this because this could be stirring in some of us. At least it was with me for for such a long time. If God seeks his own glory above all else, does that make him like Jim Henson? Meaning that God is selfish. In the Bible, the Psalms are filled with give me glory, give God glory, praise glory, praise glory, worship me. Is God selfish? I remember I was having to wrestle with this myself in early days trying to understand Christianity and God and the Bible. And there's a huge impactful um, portion of C.S. Lewis's book, I believe it's in the Reflections in the Psalm, where Lewis was struggling with this, where he was struggling with God's zeal, that being God's zeal to be glorified with how fundamentally pervasive it is with every page of the Bible. With every page of the Bible. See, Lewis couldn't get around the fact that God sounds like an old, vain woman seeking compliments. Those are Lewis's words. Don't shoot me. Those are Lewis's words. Give me glory, give me praise, sounds like a vain old woman seeking compliments. Or sounds like a puppet master seeking fame over the puppet. Here's Lewis's outrageous, outrageous response to his own rather ill-thought-of God. Bear with me. But the most obvious fact about praise, this thing that Herod gladly welcomed from the people, whether God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless sometimes even if shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check, or, you know, to, into check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, 
actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I'm not done. He goes on to say, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in the praising and praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? See, the psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men to do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable. What we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise when we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. To give him glory, to give God praise, to me, that means he's won our heart. It means God has won our heart. See, God is anything but a vain, selfish being in search of compliments, praise. He freely, he gives us himself freely and willingly, just like he did with Adam and Eve. He gives himself wholly and freely to you, which simultaneously meets our deepest need and demonstrates his fulfilling sufficiency. Thus his love and his glory form a whole. And they mix and they cohere. See, if his desire for glory bothers us, hear me on this, if his desire for glory bothers us, that should unveil to us how far we've come from a reality of his splendid existence. See, if God exists, and he does, then he is the primal reason of all reality. And because of that, God takes it pretty seriously, and that's proven dramatically in verse 23. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. (laughs) It's like a scene from Total Recall. It's disgusting. Also, if you notice, sidebar, pit stop, we have an angel punching people again. If anybody was here last week, it was punching people like a punch Peter, and it's the same exact word, again, with opposite effects, right? The first punch woke Peter up. Herod's uppercut puts him to sleep forever. I just am so hoping that there's just this angel going around punching people all the time. Like, that's his job. You're the puncher. Outside resources, again, would tell us the worms of death ate him for five solid days. Please don't think he stood there, silver robe, angel, and then he falls dead. And then all of a sudden, worms everywhere. That's not what happened. Five solid days before he finally died. Friends, that is a sickening, debasing, terrible way to die. See, just when a man thinks he has received, or excuse me, reached his own exaltation to the place of glory, God rightfully crushes him to the place 
of humility. There's a story of a powerful, mighty king in the Old Testament who thought he was the absolute bee's knees. And one day as this king is he's walking along like the rooftop of his royal palace, he blurts out, and I'll read it to you, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. But then the Bible goes on to say, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, and it starts by saying, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will stay this way until you realize who I am. For centuries, kings have been stealing glory, and for centuries, God has been humbling them. So perhaps with these cautionary tales, the next seemingly obvious question is, would this God crush me if I seek my own glory? If I seek my own glory, Casey, can I expect worms? I believe the answer to that is uh, yes. Yes. Now, please, please, please allow me to elaborate. To rob God his glory, to rob God his glory is treason. It's treason. Herod performed treason. Sooner or later, sooner or later, the rejecter, the one who performed treason, will be crushed and have an internal death. But the, here's the thing, it's so nuts. The very thing that could have saved King Herod is the very thing that drove him to become worm food. Here's what I mean. God throughout history, as we've been talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, is this relentless pursuer of his bride. He's this relentless pursuer of his bride, of his people. Again, like we mentioned earlier, we, we, we rejected him in the garden. We rejected the prophets. We rejected at the base of Mount Sinai. We rejected the tabernacle. But God's final putting himself out there. God's final, final time. He's like, okay, this is the last time I'm doing this. I'm going to put all my glory out there. Came in, in the gospel of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word is Jesus. Jesus is the new and greater tabernacle, tent, and absolutely perfect Adam. Friends, this is the gospel. I'm about to share the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Herod has rejected. Thus, the crushing It was the message that James the Apostle was teaching and the others were teaching of a glorious God who watched his creation deny him for a lesser glory, thus deserving of death. Yes, even a death like Herod. But Jesus willingly came and took that death. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to take that death. Jesus came and took that crushing. Think of it this way. Jesus came and took the worms. 
so that the glory we've been searching for in lesser things, and this is nuts, the glory we've been searching for in lesser things, those lesser glory, glory, uh, glories of him or her or children or control, reputation, fame, whatever, so that those lesser glories are not just removed, but replaced. That's an important distinction. Glories can never be removed. What we worship or gods can just never be removed. We were made to praise. They must be replaced. The glory we've been searching for all along is given to those only who believe in Jesus. And get this, this is so great. Colossians 1 says, this is so great. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Do you, do we have any idea what this means? Now we, we, are now the tabernacle. We are now the temple. We are the garden of Eden where God dwells in his glory. This is what the apostle James was preaching and got him killed. This is what I'm preaching and this is what Herod cannot stand because the Christian gospel is in direct contradiction of somebody seeking their own glory. It's robbery of God's. See, James would tell Herod, the gospel would tell the world, that if our driving purpose is self-glory in anything, if our driving purpose is self-glory in anything, we then, you then, contradict all things Jesus. Because faith is God-exalting. Jesus is God-exalting. And sin is self-exalting, as we saw with Adam and Eve. And God came to crush sin in his son, Jesus. See, Herod's glory had to be defeated so that God's glory would, look at verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. More on that next but the word of God increased and multiplied. It's exactly how the beast of a preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, you will never glory in God till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Now, for a moment on this passage, on these verses, you cannot deny the artistry with how Luke, the author of Acts, depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. I hope we see this. Again, if you remember from last week, the chapter started how? The chapter started with the Apostle James dead, Peter captured, and Herod in triumph. But at the end of the chapter, 24, 25 verses later, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is in triumph. I mean, it's, it's M. Night Shyamalan twist. <laughs> God can and is receiving glory from both freedom and fatality, both of which dwells in Acts chapter 12. So, what am I saying? What am I saying? And all I'm saying is glorify God and, and not yourself. If that was it, I mean, why did I keep you here? Why are we doing this? Is that really all I'm saying? We want this church And we want us individually and collectively to have a more grandiose and a greater awareness of just 
starting with the mere existence of God displayed in Jesus. See, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for all the reasons we've been discussing, if you know the scriptures, it says that God placed a cherubim outside of the garden so that nothing sinful may enter. In the tabernacle, a place God dwelt, the Bible says, to be in the midst of his people, God would be in what's called the Holy of Holies part of the tabernacle. And separating the Holy of Holies from everything else was this massive, thick, heavy veil. Do you know what was embroidered on that veil? A cherubim. The veil was, the Bible says, ripped. Not from bottom to top as if man came in with some samurai sword. Gotcha! The veil was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died upon the cross, stating that there is no more danger or guarding between man and God. God wants to be with man. God wants to be with man. God's always wanted to be with man. God wants to be with you and with you and with you and you and with me. See, even those here who still reject God, God's love for you or God's desire to be near you is unchanging. And what brings God most glory, please hear me, is when we enjoy him. To enjoy being with him. We we just so badly pray and desire a church that just enjoys God. We can do a lot of great things. I just can't imagine the point of pushing you guys on mission. I can't imagine trying to have cool or exciting or inspiring uh, music or whatever. Forget all that. I mean, gatherings or preachings or neighborhood dinners or discipleship groups. What If we're not enjoying God himself, we ain't going to enjoy one another until we enjoy God who brings us together. How dare we think we can just enjoy mission to push people towards a God that we ourselves have not started to enjoy. We want a church that enjoys God, enjoys opening the Bible, enjoys time of prayer. See, what brings God most glory is when we enjoy him. Some of you have heard the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's essentially just that. It's an older confession of faith from the Puritans. Uh, But the very first question is, What is the chief end of man? Basically, why did God make us? Well, it says that we were created to glorify God. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, a pastor and author by the name of John Piper has the iron gusto to say, close, but not right. He would change it slightly and pay attention to the slight change. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. See, God is glorified in our life when we enjoy him. The veil was torn so that you can enjoy him, glorify him in our moments of life. You see, we've seen what robbing of God does in Herod's life, and we've seen what the robbing of God can do in the death of Herod. But to give glory, to glorify God, is the actionable awareness 
of him in all things. To glorify God is the actionable awareness of him in all things. See, Paul, who was once called Saul, as we just read in verse 25, he wrote these words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, do you, do you, do you see this list? Whether you eat or drink, is there anything more ordinary or humdrum than eating or drinking? But then Paul continues, or whatever you do. Somebody please find me something that doesn't apply to whatever you do. So no matter what it is, everything, no matter what it is, the most mundane, unimportant thing in our life, today, on my way here, I'm practicing, I want to glorify God, and I was doing it as I was trying to brush my teeth. No joke, I'm like, I'm going to brush my teeth right now to the glory of God. It was an epic little moment between me and the Lord. The most mundane, unimportant stuff in our life should be for the glory of God. See, if I'm eating a California burrito to the glory of God, which I do quite often, if I do that, I'm aware. I'm aware of the gift. I'm aware that it's delicious. I'm aware that we've, man has created this and cultivated this as we should. I'm aware that it's a nourishment, kind of. It's a nourishment to serve, to serve my body as I serve my family, the church, loved ones. Thank you, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, for California burrito. See, anything, as we listen to music, as we attend the theater, as we enjoy barbecues on Labor Day, as we change diapers in the nursery, as we disagree with a coworker, as we make love and covenantal marriage, as we spend our money, as we do a job we hate, as we brush our teeth, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, please, please don't get me wrong. I wrestle with this every day. Every, every day. And some days I win, and most days I lose. I see how in my own life where I perceive God to be will be reflected. My life reflects whatever I worship. So does yours. My life reflects whatever I worship. And more often than not, the lesser glory I am worshiping is moi. And every day I wake up, and all of us do as Christians, with the same question, with the same fight. Will I fight God, or will I fight for God? Will me dating him bring God glory? Will me going this far with her bring God glory? Will me moving here or there bring God glory? Will me avoiding community bring God glory? Will me not taking the church seriously bring God glory? See, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher we discussed in our intro, he made it very, 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 very clear that if God existed, what? There would be practical action. See, the purpose of our lives is to remove the veil from the Father's face and to display something, to reflect something of God's glory in our actionable awareness of every day. One of my absolute favorite 
commentator says this after reading the combination of all the Bible verses on glory. It's so great. He says, it should no longer be necessary to ask the purpose of life. The purpose of life is the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray.